0: In this week's episode of Rebuilders, we are coming back again to Mark's book, A Non-Anxious Presence, and diving a little bit deeper into the notion of institutions facing network dynamics. What else should we expect for this episode, Mark?
1: hopefully it sort of articulates a dynamic that people are seeing in the world where you've got this power shift from centralized organizations, whether churches, seminaries, Parachurch organisations, but mm. all throughout the culture, to flatter networks um, which have this ability to swarm. Sometimes it's a good thing when they yeah. pull down something which is unjust, but then other times it's, it can be a toxic thing as well. How do you live in this new dynamic, what's God doing in the midst of this, and, and what to expect in the, in the coming years as we wrestle with this new dynamic?
0: Great. Well, as always, if you want to know more about the episode, have a little bit of a behind the scenes chat, you can subscribe to our mailing list by heading to Rebuilders.co and subscribing there. Let's dive in. Hi, welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark and Daniel. How are you both going?
1: I'm good because Daniel has made us tease.
0: He has. Yes. Thank you, Daniel. That's
1: right. right. finished mine. Um, it
2: did get me thinking while I was making it, um, we do drink a fair bit of tea around the office and- We do. And I suppose Australia as a whole, yeah, we do drink, we are a country of tea drinkers. Yeah. Um, so I looked it up. We're actually number 15 in the world in terms of tea drinkers. Wow. Mm. Um, but Who's at the top? Uh, Turkey. Turkey's up there. Mm. They drink okay. a lot of tea. Number um, two? Ireland. Makes uh, sense. Our friends over there. Mm-hmm. And then Iran with two kilos, and the United Kingdom number four with one point five kilos per capita per year. Has
1: Australia's tea drinking power been (coughs) also? I mean, obviously we have the sort of English British tradition of tea in Mm -hmm. Australia because of our history, but also a lot of our migrant, large migrant populations. India lots of tea, China lots of tea. We have Iranians, we have a lot of Irish people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how is migration improving our tea drinking? That's what today's episode's about. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> We're gonna do a deep dive. Quick. A Dilmar deep dive. Real Ooh. quick
1: story. So
2: my, my grandpa, who was a, a farmer, taught me how to make billy tea, which is Oh yeah. A, billy's like a for those that don't know what billies are, is it like a tin can that you put on the fire and you boil water with it. Um but you pretty much you boil water. You, you billy of water and then you tuck, chuck a like handful of tea leaves into the billy, mm. pick it up by the handle, swing it round. Oh, five yeah. times. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. And then you pour your tea.
0: Do, is that what you did with the tea bags for us? <laughs>
2: so <laughs> we are going out there? You just it. in the kitchen? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> swinging a billy. Yeah, <laughs> no, I didn't do that. Yeah, We've well, got damn tea bags. That's something that we can it look at. That was always special to. then. just had a certain flavour to it, which I always mm-hmm.
1: appreciated. You could repel your enemies at the same time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did you ever accidentally let the billy go?
2: Uh, no, no, I didn't. I was, my grandpa made sure I knew what I was doing. Oh, good Did on we, you, He also told me how to light a fire and drive a car.
0: Well, you need it's the great. fire to do the billy. At the same time. <laughs> <laughs> He's so multi-talented. Mm. So maybe grab your own cup of tea and settle in for this episode. Uh, last week we introduced Mark's new book, a non-anxious presence. And if you haven't already gone to grab yourself a copy, now is a good time to do so. We're going to unpack a little bit more uh, about what we talked about last week. And last week we if you missed it, spoke about the five uh, big things, big trends that you were sort of noticing over the last couple of years and how Mm. they've, I guess, been exacerbated during the period of the pandemic, Mm. Um, how there's massive structural change occurring across the world, Uh, the American century is coming to an end, things that we've spoken about before but uh, have influenced the way that we lead Mm. uh, both within the church and also across the world. Uh, So today we're going to narrow in on this notion of institutions facing these networked dynamics um, Mm. and a decentralization of power Mm. that occurs as a result of that. And we are navigating that at the Mm. moment and we're navigating it in a phase that you have termed a grey zone. Mm. What is a grey zone?
1: So regular listeners would have heard this term but yeah. if you're just joining us this is one of the big frameworks that I'm 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 communicating for people to understand this time that we're in. Often when there seems to be a new phase in the world, we think there's a new era beginning. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I'm arguing that we're not in a new era. We're in this in-between period. It's transitional period yeah. uh, that it's called a grey zone. Grey zone is this murky in-between place and uh, it's this transitional liminal space between the passing mm-hmm. era and the era that is to come. And so it contains elements of both the passing era and the era to come. You can see the world that's passing but still here in some ways. You can see the world that's appearing but it's not here fully. Mm-hmm. So it's a confusing, contradictory place that uh, makes people anxious because the markers we usually look to to find out where we are, to have a sense of meaning, a sense of identity, are in flux. What's driving our grey zone moment? It's primarily this shift from centralization, centralization to decentralisation. Mm-hmm. Eras... Periods of history which are really defined normally centre around a centralised power. The American century was defined by America being the global power, being the centre of commerce, culture, uh, military power—you know—influence uh, in the world. Mm. And as you then have a period where power goes away from a central place and spreads out into the world, it creates this really interesting transitional space. So the big shift in the world from centralization to decentralisation, two things driving it primarily is globalisation. Mm-hmm. Move from um, you know a world where we got one superpower to a, you know an American-led globalisation to a truly global globalisation. Uh, you know we see the changes in the global order happening at this point in time. Um, you know even with um, the rise of China, with mm. the EU now having to sort of take this new form of of, of leadership in you know with the war in Ukraine and. Um, the second thing you see is is the digital um, decentralisation caused by the internet, social media. So two huge drivers which is changing how power operates, where it resides and where it's found in our global culture at the highest levels in terms of geopolitics right down to your neighbourhood, to yourself as an individual.
0: I feel like it's also worth mentioning when we've talked about grey zone in the past and perhaps this is just – Me, um, as we've kind of tracked through COVID pandemic stuff, it's, there's almost been this quite naive sense, I would imagine, um, on my behalf being like, okay, well, COVID is the gray zone time. And once we're back into some kind of, you know, regular rhythm of life, then the gray zone is over and Mm. it's a new era, Mm. but- based on what you're just saying and based on the conversations that we've been having uh, here locally as a church, we're not. This is kind of – the COVID was the the catalyst for the mm. grey zone to begin and mm. we're now in this murky mm. space where yeah. things are really difficult to navigate. We don't know where people mm. are at. Yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah, like it's a, a doorway. If you think of the pandemic as mm. a doorway opening into grey zone. Yeah. Um, but it's not just about one crisis. You know, if you may have a crisis, which say COVID – And then the crisis is over and then you return to some form of status quo. What we're experiencing is a multiplicity of crises happening simultaneously. You know, we have a supply chain issue we've talked about. We have a war in Ukraine, which we've spoken about. You've got the rise of a genuine competitor to the United States in you know, China, you've got culture war happening, mm-hmm. you've got changes in the economy, changes in how we work, changes in how cities operate, changes in our values, we've got increasingly diverse uh, populations, you know, all of these things, technological changes, all of these things occurring at the same time, creating crises, creating change. So we're seeing change, but we're seeing an incredible escalation of change and expansion of change. That creates crises. So gray zone is a time of shifting everything around, where everything's up in the air, nothing's really settled. That that's probably a, a helpful way to understand gray zone.
0: Okay, that's that is super helpful. So, what are some of the dynamics that we expect to experience yeah. in gray zone periods yes. of time?
1: Well, I think it'd be great to. I think I feel like. It be really important to – to. there's multiple dynamics that you see. Sure, So, yeah. you know, you see these second-order effects in the world. We talked about it last week that, you know, one in three British fish and ship shops are going to close because the war in Ukraine has created a lack of sunflower um, oil distribution mm-hmm. in the world. That's one effective grey zone. But what I want to talk about today is a, a, a particular tension. I think this is really relevant for churches, seminaries – Christian institutions, which is happening to all institutions in our society. But I think not many people have articulated what's happening. And that's a power shift Mm -hmm. that has occurred in this gray zone moment around institutions, and particularly their interaction with networks. So before we get to that, to help you understand a framework of what I'm talking about, um, I've come up with a bit of a term called wild power. Okay. If you think about an animal. You talk about domesticated animals, and mm-hmm. you talk about wild animals. A domesticated animal is, uh, say, a, a, a cat. A cat um, that is a pet. It can be a horse that pulls a carriage. Um, it can be a, a guide dog that guides someone sure. um, who is visually impaired. Uh, the power of that animal is. Created, uh, sorry, is is facilitated in a particular way for a particular kind of purpose, and that takes a lot of expertise. That takes a lot of training. Uh, it's sort of hemmed in, if you like. Uh-huh. But then we talk about wild animals, and wild animals are unpredictable. Wild animals don't play by the rules that you want them to. Yeah. They're not working accord to you, according to your agenda, and that's one way to think of power. There mm. is. In a sense, domesticated power and institutions, centralized organizations, nations, markets—you um, know—often what they will do is try and guide power in a particular way. Um, but then you have these periods where it's like power breaks free from. If you think of the domesticated animal in its, um, you know, pen or uh, you know, stable, which then breaks out and goes and lives in the wild, and all of a sudden becomes undomesticated. That's what happens with power mm. during periods of change. And so at this moment of decentralization, what decentralization does, yes, it's about the internet. Yes, it's about people moving across the globe and it's about changing geopolitical order. It's about immigration, all that sort of stuff. But really what it's about is power shifting from central authorities, centrally held places to then being much more widely dispersed. Okay. Um, And- you have this movement away from – there can be periods where power centralises. So we talked about, you know, the American century. After World War II, Mm -hmm. Europe was badly affected by the war. Yep. Um, Africa was still dealing with the effects of colonisation. You know, you had um, South America had gone through different sort of economic travails Um, Asia was recovering, developing and recovering from the war. And so America almost had this free run to be the centralised power and power centralised in America. You know, you look at Hollywood, you know, you look at um, Madison Avenue, you look at industry, all this power centralised in America. It can happen, say, with um, Apple. Um, There was this very diverse um, music industry, different labels. And then when you had streaming come in, Mm. you know, you had this thing where literally, you know, Steve Jobs suggested iTunes and had all of the um, sort of, you know, record labels come to him. And all of a sudden, for a particular period there, in answer to streaming and illegal downloading, Mm. Steve Jobs centralized power in the music industries through iTunes. So, you have this thing where power is centralized in one place. But then you have this decentralization of power that happens in networks. This happens in, in nature. Um, this mm. happens in mold. <laughs> you know, this happens in human societies. And so often what you'll have is you'll have this centralization of power, and then you'll have a period where authority and integrity and power begins to drain away from these centralized authorities. It runs wild for a period, but then it sort of recategorizes in new areas of power. Um, For example, at the moment um, in the news has been Netflix, which is losing subscribers. Netflix was a mail order DVD company. They then very successfully transitioned to become the world's leading streaming entertainment service. But what's happening is um, there's challenges. Uh, There is now many streaming services and their centralized power is being attacked, not just by competitors, but also cost of living, um, you know, people's entertainment, you know, likes changing. And you can see this centralization of power that happened when they were the, the sort of the only show in town, but now it's starting to, to drain. And that's happened very quickly. There, it will reside somewhere else at some point. There will be another winner or there may be dispersed amongst 10 different winners. But mm-hmm. you always have this thing of, imagine it's like breathing, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. And so that's the first thing we need to understand. Now, if you think about... The church. If you think about seminaries, if you think about Christian schools, if you think about parachurch organisations, um, there's a very similar thing going on. Mm. You have had at moments real centralization of power. If you think about after World War II, you had a lot of um, smaller churches planted. You know, think about let's use Melbourne as an example. Yeah. After World War II, there's a lot of people going to church. It was a real high point of the church in Australian history. And you had all across the neighbourhoods, uh, Presbyterian churches, Catholic parishes, Baptist churches, Salvation Army Corps, Church of Christ, Pentecostal churches. A lot of them were like 150, 200 people. Yeah. And then what happened was you had, you know, the sort of growth of larger churches, mega churches, where all of a sudden you had this new form of doing church. The car changed things. Power was centralised in, in a few churches more. Um, so you have this sense that... Um, You know, power is centralized, but what we're seeing at this moment is the central Christian organizations actually draining power. Now, some of that's own goals. Some of that is corruption falls from grace, Um, you know, stupid decisions, you know, weird theologies. Um, But also there's a cultural dynamic going on that's not just happening in the church. It's happening in in all, all institutions, Mm. all centralized authorities are experiencing at this moment a draining of power away from themselves.
0: So essentially what you're pointing out is that there's been a, a vertical direction of power. Yes. Institution down to the people, but now it's dispersing horizontally. Yes. yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and so uh, – you know, a lot of that is about technology. Uh-huh. And so what the internet does is it's given the ability of people to communicate in a much more dynamic way horizontally. Mm. Before, again, you know, I think I've mentioned this before, if you want to record something like this, if you, if you wanted to publish, you know, and you can do a blog now, set one up in 20 minutes, mm. you'd have to publish a newspaper before. The main people who could publish information were perhaps a denominational newspaper. Um, You may have a bulletin in your church that the church secretary printed off and, you know, ran off on a copy machine. Um, You had this ability to centralise power because only centralised power could pull certain things off in terms of communication. But what the internet's done and what cheap technology's done is that actually it's changed this dynamic to this horizontal reality. And that's had this huge – now we're in the midst of a culture shift. If you can imagine the overlap of two circles of grey zone, we've got the passing era of centralised authorities yep. who have top-down communications um, which you belong to through being physically present and um, – and now that we have this developing horizontal digital reality which is a network which you don't have to be physically present you mm-hmm. can be influenced by and not physically present yeah um, someone can be in your church but influenced by a network on the other side of the world mm. that they spend f- 15 hours a week interacting with and they're in your church service or small group for three hours a week yeah so that's a new thing where you've got tremendous formation and and influence for people who are not physically present somewhere. Institutions are so much of it's built on physical presence to form you in a particular way. yeah So this is this battle then and, and, and also what happens digitally because not only is the cost of uh, communication cheaper, communication is also faster yeah So for example, for an organization to move, it's really hard. If um, Apple wanted to create a new product, the amount of work that it takes for them to do that mm. is really, really hard. For someone to communicate on one of Apple's devices, it's very, very quick. Yes. So, its it's institutions are like really large ocean liners that take minute, you know, some time to actually, you know, an aircraft carrier takes a bunch of time and decision-making to turn, but a small speedboat can turn really quickly just, yeah. you know, like, like – by the twist of someone's wrist. And that's what's happening at the moment. So, what you're seeing, this dynamic that's happening in the church, which I don't think people have really got their heads around, is in the past, we would see pressure coming against the church. We'd see that in a the old passing era from a vertical sense. People would think, oh, if pressure is going to come against the church, it's going to come from the government yes. doing something. Yes. Now, perhaps because of restrictions during the pandemic or perhaps because people read you know stories of persecution in the past or read about stories in places like North Korea now, that's very firmly you know, plastered in some people's mind. But I think the primary pressure in a, in a network, change doesn't actually come from the top, it actually emerges from the bottom upwards. Yeah. And that can be good change, that can be bad change. Mm. So, I'm not putting any value on this. There could be a church where you have a despotic senior pastor who the people in the church start to question and rise up and they're able to communicate horizontally and someone who's doing the wrong thing is pulled down. That can be happening at church A. Four blocks away in church B, you can actually have a sort of toxic reaction in the people, which can then start to pull down some leaders who are actually trying to do the right thing and take people in a direction which they don't want to go, but actually God wants them to go. So in a sense, this is semi-value free. And there's a lot of nuance needed to understand this. But this is a a challenge which I think most leaders have not got their heads around. Now, one of the big things we heard during the pandemic was pastors leaving because there was almost these – revolts in their Mm. congregations. Particularly, you know, we heard that from the US and it could be around different cultural issues, cultural war stuff and so on. But people have the ability to connect in a way and the pressure that we're facing is horizontal. So, two ways that happens. One I've sort of outlined there is that you're going to experience a feedback loop in churches that was not possible before yeah, because communication was top down, it was vertical. Secondly, you're also going to find that churches are, like the idea of a Christian like zone that you can hide out in is completely smashed now. Like this idea of like our church is hidden away from the world, completely gone because networks and the digital reality of people mean that we're being formed by non-physical digital networks that shape our minds, shape our interactions in ways that are possibly more powerful for many people than actually the in-person institutions. Yeah. So the, the pastor, the leader of a congregation, you're going to deal with networks, influences, uh, you know, I mean, to put it in this way, like you think about politics now uh, in our election, you know, mm. people are talking about the influence of foreign countries. Foreign yeah. countries are able to, you know, connect economically with Australia, culturally with Australia, and that's good when it's working well. What does that mean when they've got you know, nefarious purposes, Mm -hmm. you know. We saw in America, you know, talking about Russian influence in the election, all this sort of stuff, Britain, Brexit, you know. Um, So that's in a way happening in church, for good and bad. People are being deeply shaped. So theological streams you would have never encountered before. You know, conversations around, you know, deconverting people, political influences, cultural influences, all this is present. These networks are present in your church in a horizontal manner. And not many leaders have actually ever thought that. Mm. And this presents a, a tremendous challenge. This can be same at a seminary, you know, all of a sudden a seminary which is in that theological stream all of a sudden finds itself, you know exposed to different networks because the people inside of it are present in more than one location at once. So those two things, horizontal pressure, when people with inside that church actually, it's like a swarm dynamic. Yes, yeah. And, and what can happen is 10 people now who get together online who want to press a cause, right or wrong, against a very large institution, church, seminary, whatever, can now have tremendous influence in ways they could not 15 years ago.
0: Yeah. And I guess hearing you speak about this, it's not surprising that so many leaders are experiencing anxiety in these in these settings. And yeah, why your book, a non anxious presence, is so vital to this particular time. You mentioned just now, um, or you mentioned a lot the the impact of the internet mm. um, and its relationship to the church.
1: Mm.
0: You want to unpack two phases yes. of the internet and the church.
1: Yes. So I think what happened was you had phases of the church. I talked about some of them. you had, you know, particularly if you're looking at sort of the Protestant, evangelical, contemporary church or whatever, which you know, a lot of our audiences, not everyone, but a lot of our audience. Mm. Um, you had that stage where there was lots of smaller churches, you mm-hmm. know, and it might be churches, bigger ones at 400 or 100. And then you had the advent of mega churches. You know, the mega church was a, you know, really invented by the car in many ways. The car created the ability for people to, go beyond just their neighbourhood to church shop and go further afield and people could drive 20 minutes away, 25 minutes away, go to church in another town, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that changed the dynamic because of a technological change. The car was a technological connection device. And so churches then became, you know, larger churches had influence. They may have influence in their city, country, region, even around the world. Um, So it was this concentration of power. Then the internet comes and it's a game changer. And I think at the beginning, people are trying to work out how to use the technology. But then what you saw, things like the internet could actually even expand that contemporary church model further. Yeah. So you could, you know, have a big online presence. You know, at first it could be a, just a website so people can find your church. But then through, you know, streaming your worship music or mm-hmm. streaming your services or providing content. So you saw this expansion of larger churches' impact and, um, and then with multi-site, it's really interesting because all of a sudden you could have someone preaching in two places at once. Mm. So, again, that sort of grew. So, phase one, let's call this phase one of the church and the internet. Yep. It grew that capacity. I think we're moving now into phase two. Okay. So, in a sense, phase one was like using the internet but what it was using was like if you think of the early days of the internet you might have someone who might make a, you know a simpsons page because they're a fan of the simpsons right in the early 90s and then you know the simpsons themselves owners would make a you know whoever owns the you know fox or whatever owns mm. it would then create this key page but you go to it right so that's like phase 1 same thing we saw in the church but then phase 2 is all of a sudden social media creates this incredible ability to um you know connect horizontally yeah but also what happens with the internet is the internet companies discover that what really makes people engage for longer online is bad emotions <laughs> you will connect more if you're angry you'll connect more if something is contentious yeah you know and you know you'd see you know internet i think it was BuzzFeed where they would have a um uh uh, almost a leaderboard for the journalists writing articles and whoever was getting the most hits would go to the top of the leaderboard. And yeah. what they did was create this competitive environment where people would uh, write the most controversial article. You know, And you see this now, you click on an article which is just stupid and you click on it because it's going to make you angry. And so contentious stuff spread very quickly and this created a very highly contentious, fractious, conflict-driven, anxious environment online. So that's going on. And then what you start to see is also it enables people to have feedback loops. Again, it can be sometimes when it's good. It can be calling out something, an injustice. It can be calling out a corrupt practice in a church. It can be calling out spiritual abuse. It also can be doing the same where it's promoting someone's own toxic behavior. You can Mm -hmm. have in one area, you can have a toxic leader and the feedback loop enables that person to be held to account. In another church, it's actually toxic members of the congregation are pulling down a good leader or maybe a third church where there's a toxic leader and toxic congregation and everyone's just going for it in a massive sort of, you know, melee. So what this does is I think we've moved into phase two and a lot of the churches who set up really well and were very strong with this centralization of power, um, who then, you know, centralised resources, It gave them money, it gave them reach, gave them influence, um, and used the internet to expand that, now are experiencing the feedback loop. And the feedback loop is like a digital swarm. It moves so quickly that it's really hard, even for very tech-versed contemporary churches, to actually respond to it. And I'm hearing stories everywhere, of this dynamic playing out. This is not, you know, in your you may think in your country, you're thinking of one church. I'm not thinking of one church. I'm thinking of like 15 different things I'm hearing around the world of this dynamic playing out. And it's not just happening, you know, in the church. This is happening everywhere. I'm hearing Mm -hmm. car companies who are redoing entire ad campaigns because four people over here have all of a sudden started some pushback, you know, like against it online. Um, So this is something that people are not used to dealing with um, and this is the same for seminary. I'm hearing this in seminaries, Christian schools. You're hearing this everywhere. How do you deal with this new social media environment that has really fast feedback loops? Um, and so we have this current battle, a grey zone, where power is is moving away from those central organisations. It's wild power. And just to add one thing, Carl uh, Miller wrote a book called Death of the Gods about the power of social media, and he makes this point that when a new technology comes along, often there's not rules uh, of how to use that technology, if that makes sense. So well, that's the point we're at now. We're at a point where n- the rules aren't established. You know, Elon Musk um, you know, buy, bought Twitter and everyone's freaking out because well, what are the rules going to be? They're yeah. trying to establish rules with Twitter, but what happens if someone outspies it it going to establish different rules? Should social media be algorithmically push towards a particular justice viewpoint? Should it just be free speech? No one's worked out these rules. The churches have not worked out these rules. Um, should a church have a Facebook page where anyone can just write a response to something? How do you put negative comments? How do you deal with when there's a campaign against your church from people within your church? Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, ev- I'm even hearing to the point. I've heard churches where people are remixing church announcements, videos, but then sort of inserting know, their commentary on it um, or, you know, doing their own sort of takedown of the sermon. Now what's really interesting, just to give you a historical analogy, this is not just about the digital age. A historical analogy in the 1600s when Britain went through its civil war and Charles I was executed, you had this sort of Puritan republic and Oliver Cromwell ended up sort of leading parliament. And it was really interesting. Before then you had a centralised crown, Underneath which was a centralized church, the Anglican Church, and there was a centralized clergy, a centralized prayer book. There was everything was centralized. There was one way you did things. And uh, when Charles I executed in comes this period and things sort of freedom of religion, there's all these printing presses that are really cheap to do in England. So everyone's printing these pamphlets. It's this high information-rich environment. Mm. What's fascinating is people started going to different churches. And they just started interrupting the services. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the Quakers would go to the Baptists and the Baptist preacher would finish his sermon. And then a Quaker would get up and go, Well, this is actually what we believe. And there was even to the point um, uh, Christopher Hill talks about in his book, The World Turned Upside Down, that there were these professional hecklers who would literally just continually challenge every point during the um, preacher's messages. And it was just, it was just like Complete conflict, uh, yeah. And it was interesting because initially, what it was, it was the Puritans and the non-conformist, non-Anglicans against the Anglican system. But then, once they got power, they all turned on each other. Yeah, you know. And eventually, what happens is, you know, everyone gets so exhausted by this that they then end up inviting Charles' son back, Charles II from France, and he becomes king. So that's that's like centralized power goes decentralized, but then eventually returns to a reconsolidation of power because people sort of become exhausted by grey zone.
0: Yeah. And is that, I, I guess that's what you're suggesting is going to happen, right?
1: It may happen, but don't expect to happen next year. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is an ongoing <laughs> period of decentralization that's going to take some time. Uh, I've forgotten how long the Interregnum was. I think it's called. You know, uh, when there was no king, but it was you know decades. Yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, so this this is a completely different dynamic than most people have ever been trained Christian leaders yes. to deal with.
0: Yeah. The final dynamic uh, that you wanted to mention in terms of understanding gray zone and leading in grey zone is the notion of viral anxiety, which I feel like you've already started to touch on a little bit.
1: Yeah. So that, uh, first of all, in social media, you know, ang- anger, negative feelings spread quickly and guarantee the most engagement.
0: Yeah. And ang- just, just a little side story. Yeah, yeah. Um, someone told me yesterday that um, when they get, when well, they've been angry about the uh Limited uh, ability of Australia Post to deliver a particular piece of mail to them. Anyway, rather than uh, complain directly to them, they've been responding to the do not reply emails just to get their vent out, knowing oh. that nobody will read it. Fascinating. <laughs> I'm like, that is a very interesting approach. Wow. Yeah.
1: Maybe someone does read them.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Well, if they they do, they yeah. That's fascinating. Reading that? It's not me, just so you know.
1: Yeah, yeah just, it's not a confession. Yeah, um, Yeah. So, so part of, in my argument, mm. is we've seen an increasing prevalence of anxiety. There has always been anxiety. There is medical reasons for anxiety, um, psychological reasons for anxiety, but we're seeing epidemic anxiety across the entire culture. That yeah. seems to spread in, a, in, in an almost like pandemic-like way. And uh, you know, I think this is one of the dynamics. Mm. Um, and, and what it does is it does two things. It contributes to anxiety because we're in such a fractious moment. When you have an authority figure that is trustworthy, has integrity, that is in control of a situation, that you know, if, if you're on a plane and you hit significant turbulence and the pilot's like, ladies and gentlemen, we're hitting some turbulence. This happens all the time. Just fasten your seatbelts. It'll be 15 minutes. We'll get through it. Uh, cabin crew will be sitting down this period, but just, you know, it will all be fine. You're like, oh, phew. If the pilot gets on the thing and say, hey, i got no idea what I'm doing, we're going to go into turbulence. Got to know how, I don't know how long this is going to go yeah. for and and – please please pray for us cuz i'm not that good a pilot you're <laughs> going to be more anxious so first of all it creates a more anxious environment but then what it does is this this vertical swarm dynamic that happens horizontal. Is, sorry horizontal swarm dynamic actually also spreads anxiety. So it creates anxiety and spreads anxiety. It spreads it in populations and it spreads it in leaders and institutions. So it's creating this incredibly anxious environment, you know, and that's one of the reasons the book's called A Non-Anxious Presence, like ask the question of how do you lead in that? That's a whole book. But I just want to give one thing that I think is happening that is really key. Um I think one of the one of the real keys of of leading is we have to ask the question what is resiliency? We have to ask what is it really to belong to the organizations of which you're a part? And I think partially because you've been able to during this last phase of the internet is spread really wide. Yeah. And you've had churches which have grown really wide and people have this loose connection with it that means the only feedback loop they can have is very much in this digital form. Yeah, But in churches where you have or organisations or seminaries or whatever, when it's much more based around a remnant dynamic where you have this sort of agreed upon theological vision, devotion, discipleship life that you're living together, it may be smaller, but actually it's it's more resilient. So in phase one, big is impressive. Um, But you think about, you know, Nassim nicholas Taleb talks about, you know, an elephant will die if you drop it from, you know, seven feet, but a cat and a mouse survive because they're smaller. So Mm. in a chaotic grey zone moment, bigger things are actually more fragile. Mm. Um, They were advantageous in previous centralised, you know, authority areas. So I think also, you know, smaller, um, more centrally you know, relationally connected. Yes. So if I've got a problem with you, I'm not going to blast you online. I'm going to say, hey, Liddy, can we just have a chat? Yeah, yeah. You know, when you've got that ability and and you're very clear of what you stand for and very clear about what you don't stand for. Yes. And I think part of the thing was like to get wider, we pulled that back in again. And I think particularly with cultural Christianity, like, again, I think we talked last episode, there was this huge tranche of cultural Christians in America who – you know, we're fairly moral-ish people and get them into church and, you know, give them programs and they'll sort of come along. That's very quickly in this decentralized moment disappearing. So moving from a, a paradigm of providing, uh, and that's not just true in America, I think it's all over the place, providing for cultural Christians who, who, by the way, can, what's happening now is part of the cultural value in many places of going to church has disappeared yeah. and so people are like, Okay, I'm asking a question of, of like, I'm no longer going to have that value. So they can also turn on their previous experiences very quickly. Um, and, and, yeah, so, so how do you, um, you know, create a much more healthy resilience? So you need health both in leaders yes. and health in followers.
0: And that's what a remnant is. Ultimately. That's what a
1: remnant is because yeah. you're all pushing towards health in Christ, becoming more Christ like. Is there going to be problems? Yes, still. But I think a remnant focus now instead of a cultural Christian, you know, it, it's now smaller but deeper versus wider but um, uh, uh, shallower. shallower. Yeah. Um, you know, and particularly too, I think also visibility was an advantage in the previous phase. But increasingly visibility is fragility. So there's an element of people know you not because of your brand but actually because of your brandedness by Christ. Yes. And I use that almost in that term of a servant or, you know, like like slave for Christ in that sense. You yeah,
0: know? yeah. Reminds me of that um, song. I think it's from the 80s, maybe 70s, um, about they'll know we are Christians by our love. Yes. Yeah. And that's ultimately what it comes down to. Love. Yes. Yeah, not our status in the world necessarily.
1: And if I could just add too, like, you know, this is me articulating something I see. I don't have all the answers. But what I do know, what's good about networks is we just said, I said at some point that the change comes from the bottom up. What Mm. I'm hopeful about is, yeah, there's going to be a lot of wreckage in this period, but people turning to God, a remnant church, Answers will emerge from everywhere. We're going to hear like, "Oh, this is what these guys in Dublin are doing." Yeah. Oh, this is what's happening in Oslo. Oh, that's what these guys in Atlanta are doing. Oh, this is what's happening you know, in Ballarat. Like, you're going to see this 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 responses to this emerge because it's not going to come from the big church dealing with it over here. It's going to be this networked response of the people of God uh, and working in their context, and us learning from that to get this sort of you know this this bottom up um, responses God. Meets us where we are in the midst of this.
0: Yeah, great. Can I read that last um, section of, of Isaiah 6 to end?
1: How can we say no? Oh. No, good, great passage.
0: Great. Uh, so Isaiah 6, I'm just going to go with verse 13. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste but as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Mm. And that holy seed is the remnant that you speak of.
1: 100%. It's such, a, it's such an invoca, evocative image, isn't it? Mm. You know, like I, I think of a tree we cut down the front. Garden of our house, and you thought it was dead. Yeah. (laughs) So many times you got like the guy to chop it down and stuff like that, and then it's dead. It's fine. You know, you give up on it, and then you just would see that little green shoot coming and grow. And, um, yeah, that's that's the irrepressible growth potential of a remnant, Mm. Um, which perhaps if you're listening is you.